Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio for Friday, April 8th, 2016. My name is Cliff Slotnick, also known as the Z-Man, and I'm podcasting from Studio C in the Keys Rocks, Pennsylvania. My partner and co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, is in Atlanta attending the IICRC board meetings, and our engineer, John, you got to have faith, is at the controls. I write a blog after each show in which I try to capture the essence and most important points of the interview. Today's guest is Paul Handerhan, Vice President of Public Policy with the Florida Association of Insurance Reform. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Last but not least, please visit the IQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IQTraining.com. Now it's time for today's IQ Radio trivia question. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations! To Doug Conan, Aerotech in Dayton, Ohio, and to Vic Cafaro in Chesterfield, Virginia, for a photo finish on last week's IQ Radio Trivia Question. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, April 8, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas LLC, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for this week's IQ Radio trivia question. Florida lawmakers are currently weighing two bills that would address the abuse of the assignment of benefits provision. Name them. Today's guest is Paul Handerhan. He serves as Vice President of Public Policy for the Florida Association for Insurance Reform, also known as FAIR. FAIR is a nonprofit association that works with policymakers to bring balanced solutions to the difficult Florida property insurance market. As the association's founder, FAIR has grown from a startup consumer group with a few dozen members 
to a powerful force for balanced insurance reforms. Fair works to reduce property insurance rates by reducing risk while ensuring that the interests of insurance consumers are protected. The fair policy model is to consult with all stakeholders to find balanced solutions which support across the political spectrum. In addition to its expansive legislative reform agenda, FAIR is the driving force between bringing PACE, the property-assessed clean energy programs, to Florida, which has a PACE statute that allows for wind mitigation, property improvements, in addition to renewable and sustainable energy improvements. Paul's consulting background spans over two decades of business management, governmental relations. Paul, thank you for joining, and we have some intro music for you. Okay, Paul, thank you for joining, and, uh, you know, I thought that was pretty fitting music for, uh, for this morning about a leak in, in this old building. Well, your profession is public adjusting. Uh, that's kind of how you came to fear. What is the premise be- behind public adjusters? Well, first, Cliff, thanks for having me on the radio program. I, I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you and and go over a whole host of uh, questions that you've put together. Um, but I guess to start out, the public adjusting profession, basically, public adjusting's been around for about 100 years. Uh, it, it started in the Northeast, and then it, it slowly moved across the country. Uh, where I have the most information, obviously, is in Florida, um, where most of my background is. Um, I would tell you public adjusters... Uh, play a very important role for consumers. Um, There's there's usually two different types of scenarios in which a public adjuster is retained uh, by a policyholder. Um, The first situation, which is probably the most common, uh, happens when you have a busy working professional. And the opportunity cost for them to actually handle the claim themselves doesn't make sense. Uh, the fact that they're a busy working professional, the, the thought process is, listen, if I can hire and retain a professional to come in, handle the claim for me, and make sure that I get fully indemnified, that I'm happy to pay a fee for that service. Uh, and that is the bulk of the clients that public adjusters represent. There's another cross-section of policyholders um, who maybe have gone through the claim process uh, and tried to receive Uh, a settlement with their insurance company, but for one reason or another, they were not able to achieve that settlement, and they may want to retain a public adjuster to uh, help them with that dispute to kind of advocate their position. Fair enough. Uh, I think most people would have a tendency to call an attorney as opposed to a public adjuster. You know, what benefit does a public adjuster bring that an attorney might not bring? Well, attorneys, uh, by statute, 
um, can act as a public adjuster uh, due to their their law license. They can go to the Department of Financial Services and automatically get a public adjusting license. Uh, but I think what you would see, most attorneys uh, do not want to be in the business of adjusting losses. Uh, they're in the business of practicing law. So the distinction would be, um, you know, a public adjuster is going to go out to the physical property. Um, they are going to do the investigatory work. Uh, they're going to prepare reports. They're going to uh, prepare an assessment of the damages um, where an attorney would take that work product into a court of law if there was a dispute, um, and then they would use that public adjuster or uh, other third party as an expert in the case. Uh, but you're not going to find many attorneys who are going to go out to a property with a tape measure or you know moisture reading materials and actually go through and act as their own expert. So that's kind of the difference. And I, and I suspect policy knowledge as well. It would seem that public adjusters, you know, through their organizations and you know, sharing among themselves, would probably have a more intimate knowledge of the policy. Um, I, I wouldn't say that. I would say that most attorneys, especially ones that specialize uh, in first-party property, are extremely well-versed in policy language. Uh, public adjusters also do do... Uh, a tremendous amount of, you know, pre-licensing study. They have to take a state exam uh, that, that trains them on how to read and interpret insurance contracts, uh, but they're also required to do a certain amount of continuing education uh, every two years, and a lot of that continuing education ties back to, you know, current statutes, uh, policy language. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't say that one over the other and, you know, it's very individualized, obviously. Uh, some attorneys invest more time in, in this area um, than other attorneys, and some public adjusters invest, you know, more of their time in this area than other public adjusters. So it's not uniform across the board, but you could definitely find many attorneys that are very well-versed uh, under policy language, and you can also find a number of public adjusters that are also uh, extremely well-versed when it comes to policy language. Okay. Paul, tell us a little about the uh, tell our audience a little bit about the Florida Association for Insurance Reform, uh, when it was formed, and why it was founded. So, after we had the rash of hurricanes, uh, Wilma, Jeannie, Francis, Ivan, um, I was uh, acting as a public adjuster at that point, and our industry. Um, well, let me go a step back. What had happened was there was a shortage of adjusters. Um, and if you remember back on that time, it was taking sometimes, you know, a month to three months before the insurance company's adjuster could actually get out to somebody's property to, to first look at the property at the, at the initial inspection. Well, that happened because there was such a high frequency of claims but there just wasn't enough adjusters to get on the ground and get to all these properties. So what the legislature did in, the Department of, with, in conjunction with the Department of Financial Services is they changed the licensing requirement, which at that time you had to sit for a state exam in order to be a licensed adjuster. Whether you were a public adjuster, an independent adjuster, a company adjuster, they all were licensed under the same umbrella. So in order to streamline that process, uh, 
they put together this 40-hour certification uh, class where an individual would go take this certification, uh, become an insurance adjuster, um, and then they can go out there and start adjusting losses. Well, this was primarily done so insurance companies could have more adjusters so they can get them out to the property. Um, but being that public adjusters were under the same umbrella, uh, as soon as they made that change, it also applied to public adjusters. And one of the issues that we saw within our industry is we went from somewhere around 1,000 public adjusters, uh, and then within a year or two, we bloomed, bloomed up to about 4,000 public adjusters. And not that that's necessarily a bad thing, uh, but the problem is being a public adjuster typically um, or I wouldn't say typically, but I would say historically before that point, most public adjusters had been in the industry for a long time. Many of them had already worked for insurance companies for a numbers of year, years and were very well versed in the process. Um, when this law changed and we had this jump from 1,000 to 4,000 public adjusters, many of the new public adjusters really didn't have any uh, historical claims experience uh, and we're getting into the industry for the first time. Uh, many of them were incentivized to get into the industry because they had heard from friends or family members or maybe they had a claim of their, of their cells and said, listen, this is a really good opportunity to make great money, and there's a huge demand out there because of the number of storms that we had uh, just went through. So that cradle, it was very disruptive for the public adjusting industry and we started to see all types of unethical behavior from public adjusters. Um, some of it uh, was intentional, some of it was not intentional. Some of it was just from an education standpoint that these new public adjusters didn't know what they were doing uh, was having such a negative impact on the industry. So at that time, FAPIA, which is the Florida Association of Public Insurance Adjusters, which was founded uh, right after Hurricane Andrew, uh, immediately got involved and went to Tallahassee uh, to educate legislators on what our industry really does and help try to craft some public policy to get a handle on, on this issue that we were going through. But one thing that I saw uh, right off the bat was when you, you looked at Tallahassee, there's a lot of different trades groups. Uh, but typically those trades groups um, represent a very specific uh, segment in the market. So if it was an insurance company group, you know, they looked at what was best for the insurance company. If it was uh, a trial bar group, they looked what was best for the trial bar. If it was a contractor group, they looked for what was best for the contractors. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if you're just looking out for your own best interest, uh, which there's nothing wrong with doing that, uh, but sometimes you can overstep into other areas, especially insurance, which impacts so many industries. Um, and you would see kind of uh, fighting between the groups, um, each trying to advocate for their own best position. So when I was in Tallahassee and I kind of saw this dysfunction, what, what happens is you would typically, you would have winners and losers. It would be this type of zero-sum politics where one group won and one lost. Um, and I said, well, you know, there's got to be a better way 
than just having winners and losers because later on the losers are going to try to change the law because they're not happy with it. And then you have this constant back and forth uh, with public policy. And one of the most disruptive things uh, to the marketplace uh, is not really wind risk or underwriting risk. Uh, it's the risk of uncertainty. When uh, capital's you know, looking to come into Florida, they can price through underwriting all different types of risk. But if they don't know what the laws are going to be in the next two to three years, um, that's something that they can't price. So that uncertainty is very disruptive. So it was my thought process and the thought process of some others um, within the insurance industry um, back at that point. Wouldn't it be great if we had a group where you could have unlimited amount of stakeholders? So basically, you know, if you felt your voice was important or that you felt passionate about a certain issue, that you could have your voice heard. You could have a seat at the table. Um, and the goal was, you know, listen, you're not always going to get all these individual groups to agree, but there's got to be things that, you know, we typically call win-wins, where you can have these groups sit down and say, listen, there's five things we can agree to, uh, but here's three things that we can all agree to that's good for the industry, and that's also good for uh, policyholders and consumers. And when you find those win-wins uh, and you can enact those in the public policy, those are public policy initiatives that will last, you know, for the long term. You know, these aren't things that, you know, typically the very following year you're going to have those very same groups trying to amend or, or trying to change that public policy because everybody had, you know, a seat at the table and had some participation, and it was something that everybody could agree to. So that was the the premise of Fair when we when we first started early on. It was it was having input, uh, you know, putting forward very moderate public policy uh, that all stakeholders had a had a part of and that they could agree to. So who has benefited from the advocacy that Fair has done? Well, I, I think the, the true beneficiaries at the end of the day and, the, and, you know, what our main goal is, I mean, who we're trying to serve is Florida policyholders. Um, now, the Florida policyholders, we do have, you know, through our membership level, um, membership for the, the policyholders to, to, to access. But typically when we're, we're crafting public policy, you know, we're looking to the different industry leaders. So, you know, if there's an issue having to do with construction or if there's an issue having to do with mold or if there's an issue having to do with any number of things, we want to go to the industry experts within that industry to come sit at the table and work with us uh, to come up with the best public policy that not only serves their industry but provides benefit to the marketplace. And if we're providing benefit to the marketplace, ultimately that filters down to the to benefits to the consumer. And, and, and that's who we're really trying to impact at the lowest level. Fair enough. Statistically, does Florida have more water damage claims per capita and or more costly claims per square foot than other states? You know, I... 
I don't have, you know, quantifiable statistics of all the other states. Um, I can tell you, you know, why do we have water damage cases? The, I, I think if you look at covered perils, you know, accidental discharge from a plumbing or a heating or air conditioning system is probably the most common type of cause of loss that you'll see. Uh, so it has the highest frequency of the number of claims. But I think a lot of that, you know, is just tied into, you know, how old are the areas where you're going to see claims. So like Florida in particular, I know in Miami-Dade County, we have a high frequency of claims within Miami-Dade County. Uh, and there's, there's, there's a number of reasons of why that's happening. Uh, but a part of that is, I think, just the fact that the plumbing systems and the, the stock of construction uh, within that geographic area uh, is, you know, older, is, you know, 50-plus years. And the material lifespan of a lot of these plumbing systems are getting to the point where they're failing. Uh, there was, you know, other situations where you had, I don't know if you remember, uh, I believe it was the Shell organization, but they manufactured a product that was called uh, polybutylene piping. Um, yes. But that was very widely spread, used um, throughout the country and also in Florida. And there was some defects with that product, which, you know, created a lot of, you know, burst pipes and water damage cases. Um, so those are definitely two things that are impacting uh, the amount of water. I would imagine geographically across the whole country where you have other pockets of areas where you have aging plumbing systems or you have defective work products uh, that were used, that you probably see similar uh, type of uh, loss frequencies in those areas as well. Let's talk a little bit about, well, what can you tell our listeners about Citizens Property Insurance Corporation? You know, where do they come from? What do they do? Well, Citizens uh, started out as the FJUA, um, which was the Florida Joint Underwriters Association, um, which was basically, you know, the insurer of last resort. Um, after Hurricane Andrew, um, as you recall, there was a, a, I think we had about 11 admitted carriers after Andrew that became insolvent. Well, if you have 11 insurance companies that were insuring people that became insolvent and then other carriers uh, that decided that the risk was just too high for them uh, and they were exiting the marketplace, you know, we really had no viable option of where to put these policyholders. So the state legislature created citizens. Uh, they also created the Florida Hurricane Cat Fund. Um, and, you know, these two organizations were put in place, uh, A, citizens, to make sure that policyholders who couldn't find coverage in the private market had a place to get coverage. Uh, because it's, it would just be completely unacceptable uh, to our banking system and to our real estate market 
for property owners not to be able to find coverage. Um, and you'll, what you'll see is after that point, you have a spike in uh, growth of citizens. And then that spike over a period of time drew back down. And then after 2004, 2005, 2006, when we had the stream of hurricanes, you see again a major spike in citizens, um, which went to, I think we were up to 1.4 million policyholders uh, in citizens' property insurance. So is that good? Is that bad? I think it's good that we have a citizens' property insurance. We need to have um, a, a, an insurer of last resort. And then I don't believe it's ever going to be the case where we're going to be able to have 100% of the policies uh, in the admitted market. So it's, it's good that we have that, that, that safety net. At the same time, we really want it to be the last resort. We don't want it to be the insurer of the first, uh, first resort or the largest property insurer in the state of Florida. Uh, we don't want the state of Florida, you know, getting into the private in insurance market. Um, there's a couple of reasons why that's, that's bad for growth. Um, statutorily, you know, citizens can only have their rates raised. They call it the glide path. So citizens can only raise their rates 10% every single year, even if those rates are not actuarially sound. So if you're a private insurance company and you're out in the market and you want to be profitable, you know, you have to charge actuarially sound rates. Uh, if you're now competing with citizens, which is a quasi-governmental, uh, you know, insurance company, that can operate, you know, either at a loss or, you know, at, at less than, than actuarially sound rates. They also have certain tax advantages that they have over, you know, being a, a governmental agency over a private insurance company. But if you have citizens competing directly with the admitted market, you know, there's an unfair competitive advantage there for citizens. Um, and then you're never going to get the, the private market to a level where they can start reducing those policies. So they're, they, you know, just recently, I would say over, I, don't, I can't remember exactly when the depopulation program started, um, but you've seen uh, a, a major push to depopulate, you know, citizens, policyholders out of citizens and then put them back into the private market. I've got a couple follow-up questions, Paul. In regards to citizens, you know, as this insurer of last resort, did that affect people uh, of all economic situations, both rich and poor, or you know, was it just focused on you know poor people? No, I, I don't think it had any specific target of anybody in any type of you know economic class, um, you know, one of the, and, and actually if you look at and going through, you know, both of those cycles, you know, many of the private carriers at that point did not want to insure um, some coastal risks. So those, those policyholders, you know, 100% of them, you know, were going into citizens. And you know, those risks outside by the coastal areas, uh, 
uh, are obviously higher in property value, and, and those policyholders are probably more affluent. Uh, but you also have on the low end, you have some properties that might be, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old, that if a private insurance company were looking to insure that risk, it would be super expensive because the chance of that person having a claim, you know, is very high. You know, they have an old plumbing system, they have an old roof, they have old windows, the property is not the current code. So if, if you took that and put that into your underwriting system, it would say in order to be actuarially sound, you need to charge X. And many times, you know, that pricing structure would be, you know, priced out of their affordability. So you had the high end, you had the low end, and then you just had individual policyholders, you know, whether it was after Andrew and companies were becoming insolvent. So you had a complete, um, you know, economic mix of people within citizens. It, it wasn't any one type of uh, economic background. Thank you. As from your two vantage points, one as a public adjuster and the other, you know, working for this for, with, with FAIR on advocacy, are there any business practices and or policy language concerns that you have about the citizens' insurance policies? Well, you know, and that's that's a difficult question, right? So you're, you're kind of walking this balancing act. And, you know, for us at FAIR, uh, we're, we're basically, we're a consumer organization. So we want to make sure that consumers have adequate coverage uh, to make sure that when they have losses, uh, that they have reasonable coverage and then they can get paid. So the balancing act comes in, you know, how do you make the private carriers or the admitted carriers um, more attractive to uh, policyholders when you have citizens that has this glide path of only 10%. So if Citizens is cheaper and they have the same coverage, it's only natural that people are going to want to gravitate and either stay in Citizens or leave the private market and go get insured by Citizens. So it was, you know, put forward by uh, our state government and our legislature to reduce some of the coverages uh, from Citizens to make the private market more attractive. So, you know, to me, I, I'm, I'm very conflicted with that because sometimes policyholders don't really understand insurance. They really don't understand the product that they're buying. Um, they're extremely price sensitive, and they may go to a policy because it may save them $25. Um, and I, I don't have any problem with homeowners saving $25 or even – uh, taking on more risk themselves if they're aware that, hey, listen, this policy has less coverages. Uh, and in the event of this type of loss, if you purchase this particular policy, you know, you may have to pay out of pocket for these repairs. Uh, but the, the, the concern for me is that the average policyholder just really isn't typically educated enough to make those decisions. Um, thankfully, we do have a tremendous amount of good insurance agents across the state uh, that, that do provide an important role as educating uh, consumers into their different choices, but there was a time there that there wasn't a lot of options. 
you know, where citizens primarily was your only option. And in that type scenario, you know, where citizens is your only option, if, if coverages are, are reduced, then that can have a negative impact on, on, on policyholders. Thankfully, today, in the current uh, marketplace, we have a very competitive and a very robust admitted market. Um, and, and you'll see, you know, insurance companies today are competing for these policyholders. Uh, and that was not the case uh, in a not-too-recent past. Okay, Paul. Thank you. The information has been very, very informative. Uh, we need to take a short break to thank our sponsors. We're going to halftime now. Please stay with us. We'll return in approximately 90 seconds. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com and, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, let's shift gears and change subjects. Paul, let's talk a little bit about something called the assignment of benefits. What is the assignment of benefits? How old is it? In what other states is the assignment of benefits used? So, when we talk about an assignment of benefits, the assignment of benefits, I believe, is utilized in, in probably all of the states in our country. Um, don't hold me to that. I'm, I'm saying that anecdotally, but I would imagine that's being the case um, there's a, a lot of case law where a policyholder or an insured can assign the benefits to a certain claim. Um, the, the particular scenario that I would give you, and you know, most of this case law dates back you know, for 100 years. 
Um, but the, the one that would probably resonate the most would be a situation like where you go to your doctor. Um, you know, when you go to see your doctor, you don't typically go and pay for the services up front. He knows that you have insurance. You show him, you know, your card, your policy number, and then you typically you sign a form. And one of those forms is going to be an assignment of benefits that basically says, you know, the doctor agrees to go ahead and treat you, you know, and provide services, and you agree to assign to that doctor the ability for him to go collect the benefit for providing those services. So, you know, this is a, you know, a long-standing, you know, uh, transaction that's been around for a long time, and I I would be... um, I would be shocked if if it wasn't throughout, you know, all all the states of the United States. Paul, isn't it true that prior to assignment of benefits becoming commonly used in homeowners insurance claims, a water damage restoration contractor would come out to the job, do emergency response, get the policyholder to sign a contract or work authorization, including a notice of lien saying the insured was responsible to pay for their services. The insured would then submit the bills and the insurance company or their third-party administrator could determine that the fee was too high and then leave the insured holding the bag and the need for the contractor to sue the property owner or more likely reduce the bill. So, you know, now we're going into the territory of, you know, general contractors, restoration contractors, subcontractors. And this is more of a new phenomena uh, that we've seen, you know, probably going back about five years now um, where contractors have used the same model that doctors use to now provide construction services um, when they pertain to insurance claims. Um, In theory, you know, it sounds like a very good tool. Um, you know, you go to a homeowner. The homeowner doesn't have to pay any of the money out of pocket. You say, listen, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to effectuate the repairs, um, and then I'll just bill your insurance company directly. Um, and I think that actually has some uh, consumer benefits tied into it. I think the problem has been is because it's such a new area uh, for the restoration industry, there's really not a lot of controls around how that process works. So for doctors, you know, they've been doing this for, you know, let's say at least the past 50 years utilizing this tool, and there are a lot of uh, rules and regulations uh, how doctors apply their assignment of benefits, and we really don't have that where it's being utilized by restoration contractors. I've just outlined, you know, a couple issues, and this kind of ties back to, you know, public adjusters after the hurricanes, you know, when we had a whole bunch of new public adjusters, you know, entering the marketplace, and there were some unintended consequences. This new use of assignment of benefits uh, has come with some unintended consequences as well. Um, Typically, when a restoration contractor goes out and takes an assignment of benefits for services provided, uh, and this may be changing a little bit now, but in the beginning, they would typically take 
100% of the claim assignment. Um, and the scenario would be like, let's say I'm a roofing contractor uh, and a homeowner has suffered tornado damage uh, and their roof is damaged and the roof is leaking and there's interior water damage and mold damage, but the roofer goes and signs a 100% assignment of benefits under the contract, um, which now means that that roofing contractor owns the claim. The homeowner has agreed to sign the claim over to the roofing contractor. The roofing contractor does exactly what he told the homeowner he was going to do. Uh, he puts on a brand new roof. He submits his bill to the insurance company. Uh, the insurance company agrees to pay the roofer, you know, X amount of dollars for his services uh, and requests a release. The roofer signs a release and the claim is over. The homeowner then goes out to try to uh, fix the rest of the property, which is maybe the interior water damage or the mold, and then they find out that, well, wait a second, you know, homeowner, um, you don't have the ability now to pursue this claim because you've already signed it to someone else, and they've already settled the case. So we saw a lot of those type of cases in the beginning. Um, there was other situations where some of the people that were trying to get these contracts of assignment of benefits, they would go out, they would talk to the homeowner, and they wouldn't really fully explain what the homeowner was signing over. So there wasn't any like real clear disclosures there. I think if a, if a homeowner knows that they're assigning their benefits and that's what they want to do, they should have every right to do it. But if you're a restoration contractor, you have to be very clear and you have to explain to your policyholder, listen, this is what you're signing over. These are the rights. Um, you know, we saw, you know, many times where, you know, we spoke with homeowners and they said, you know, we were told by the restoration contractor, just, just sign initial here. You don't have to pay any money and we'll bill your insurance company directly. But not really explaining to them, you know, that they're assigning all their claim rights over to this insurance, to this restoration company so we really didn't have the disclosures there like that you would have in the in the medical field. So well, yes, it, okay, it is, and, and so I, I preference that with your your next question because it was it was in a couple parts. But yes, so it does take the homeowner out of the equation, where if the contractor did not have an assignment of benefits that they would have to bill the insurance, or they would have to bill the policyholder directly. And if there was some type of dispute where the insurance company were, was unwilling to pay for a certain scope of damages or a certain dollar amount, then that contractor typically would have to lien the homeowner for the difference. Uh, so there's some definite advantages. I, I would say the only difference in that scenario is typically when a contractor used to do that, the contractor would in advance um, under the, the situation where they were getting uh, uh, lien rights under a, a regular contract that was not an assignment of benefits, but they would provide the scope to the, to the policyholder. They would tell the policyholder, this is how much the job is going to be, so that at least the policyholder at that point had the option to say, okay, well, I really trust this contractor. He's telling me he's going to do X, Y, and Z. He's telling me that it's going to cost $10,000. He's, 
he's telling me he will work with my insurance company, but if my insurance company only pays half or doesn't pay for any of it, then I'm still on the hook and I sign that agreement. There's all types of transparency and disclosures on the front end that the, that the consumer knows about. And then they, they have the option at that point if, if they want. Obviously, they can go out and get multiple bids from multiple contractors. So they're just a lot more engaged in the process uh, versus uh, the transaction that happens when you're utilizing an assignment of benefits. Yeah, I, I think from the contractor's perspective, uh, you know, they, they work hard. They respond in the middle of the night and holidays and, and weekends and you know, they have published price lists and agreed price lists with insurance companies, and they go out and they do the work, and then the insurance company uses a third-party administrator to look at the bill and say, this is too high and that's too high. And, you know, some of these third-party administrators say, we'll save you 25 30%, you know, on, on every bill. So it almost seems to me that uh, restoration contractors are using it as a defense mechanism because, uh, you know, they don't want to – do the work, be committed to it, and then negotiate for the price afterwards. Yeah, so, you know, and all restoration contractors and all insurance companies, you know, they're not monolithic. They're not all the same, right? Some are better than others. Um, and the best way, you know, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with using an assignment of benefits if it's used in a very um, disclosed way in a very ethical manner. If you're, you know, you're you're really, you know, engaging the consumer so they know what they're doing. Um, and if if your if your billing practices are ethical and you're documenting, you know, exactly what you're doing. I mean, I can only tell you anecdotally. I mean, what we hear from the insurance industry is, you know, listen, we'll we'll get a bill from a restoration contractor with an assignment of benefits but we never got a chance to inspect the loss or, you know, they sent us a bill, but there's no photos or no documentation, uh, which I think, you know, if that is the case, you know, I'm not saying it's always the case, and I'm sure it does happen from time to time, but that would put a contractor in a precarious situation on, you know, having a more difficult time getting paid. But if, if a contractor goes out there, they, you know, fully document everything with photos, uh, they give the insurance company prompt notice, uh, have them come out and look at all the damages, you know, before they start doing repairs. Um, you know, if they're doing dry out, do moisture maps, um, you know, take moisture readings, document all that, uh, inventory the equipment that you have out there, photograph it, because the more that you can document this, when it comes time to sending it to the insurance company and you can prove that the steps that you took were reasonable, and this is the documentation on why it had to be done, you're probably going to have a much better time getting paid. And then if you are with an insurance company who is not acting in an ethical manner and they're still not willing to pay, well, then I think you have every right to bring some type of action, you know, to force them to do the right thing. But I think ahead of time, you know, making sure that your cases are documented properly making sure that you're engaging the policyholder, engaging the insurance company with the decisions will go a long way with not having to file litigation. And if I'm, and if I'm a restoration contractor, I mean, the last thing I want to do is for the case to go into litigation, and then I'm not going to get paid for, you know, 30, 60, 90, you know, maybe a year or two 
while this case is being litigated. If I can document it properly, uh, engage the insurance company and the policyholder, and justify what I'm doing, you know, hopefully I'll get paid within 30 to 60 days and I can move on to the next job. Paul, tell us about, I suspect as a public adjuster, if you're handling a claim for someone, that your contract would contain uh, an associate, uh, you know, assignment of benefits. Can you explain how you would use it in, in your contract and how you would be transparent with the customer about it? Yeah, so I always tell my policyholder, and um, let me just preference this by not every single public adjuster uses an assignment. Uh, I do have an assignment clause in my contract. Um, my assignment um, is not for the claim benefits, uh, and my assignment is not for the claim in general. Uh, my assignment is only for the percentage uh, of whatever I would be charging the policyholder to provide the services that I provide. But when I go in and speak with a policyholder, what I tell them is, Listen, and typically the, the policyholders I deal with are those working busy professionals that, you know, they see the value in me, in me providing this service. But what I tell them is I say, listen, you know, my job is to handle this process for you so you can continue to do what it is that you do. If you're a doctor, you can continue to, to treat patients. You know, if you're a lawyer, you can continue to practice law, you know. My expertise is a first-party property. I'm going to make sure that this process is handled and that you're 100% indemnified. I'm not promising to get you a bucket of money. I'm not promising that you'll have anything more than what the insurance company owes to put you back to your pre-loss condition. And then I, I let them know there's going to be, even once that's all done, there's going to be certain things that you're going to be responsible for as a policyholder, which is you have to pay your deductible, and then you're responsible to pay my fee. So those two things, if I do my job perfectly, and just for easy math, let's say the gross loss is $10,000 and my fee is 10%, and you have a $1,000 deductible, if I do my job perfectly for this $10,000 loss, you're going to get a check for eight grand at the end of the day after your deductible is deducted and you pay me my fee, and you're going to have to subsidize the additional 2000 to complete the 100% of the repairs. But the deductible you agreed to when you bought your policy and whatever, some people have higher and lower deductibles, and the fee you're agreeing to now because I'm providing the service that I'm going to handle this process for you. Not that I'm going to get you more money that the insurance company could pay or more money than one individual over the other. My goal is just to get you indemnified. And um, I honestly, I've never had a policyholder, after being that open and transparent, you know, the, the natural reaction would be like, oh, wow, well, you know, if going with you I have to pay a deductible and going with you I have to subsidize this fee, I think I'm going to see if I can find somebody else. It's never happened to me. The, the policyholders that I've always spoken with have always told me, listen, that's exactly what I want. I don't, I'm not looking for somebody to enrich me on this claim. I just want what's fair. I just want what, what I'm owed. And if you can handle the process for me so I can continue to do what I, what I need to do, great. Where do I sign? And then the flip side is, 
you know, sometimes we have policyholders that have a dispute, but the scenario is exactly the same. Um, and that type of transparency, um, you know, goes a long way for all the stakeholders that are involved in our industry. No matter, no matter what you do, um, you should always strive to have that level of transparency with the policyholder. So to give them the opportunity that they understand what they're getting themselves into, and at the end of the process, there's no surprises or they don't feel like, you know, expectations were set at, at one level, but, uh, you know, another thing was delivered. Okay. What we're going to do at this point is, hang on, Paul, we're going to go into what we call our roundup. Uh, we're going to bring in uh, a guest, uh, the global watchdog, and he's going to ask you a question. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the final word. So uh, let's go ahead and do a roundup, John. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. Who let the dogs out? Hey, Pete, how are you? Hey, good, Cliff. And I enjoyed listening to the interview. I, uh, but just one question? I mean, are you kidding me? You know what he got handcuffs on me today? I'll give you two. How's that? Uh, well, then I better make a multi part. Now, seriously, Paul, uh, listen, a very uh, interesting discussion today. I uh, enjoyed it. So I got um, one question I actually want to ask is um, with the Fabian Group, your Florida uh, um, public adjusting group, are do they have any affiliation with the National Napia uh, adjusting group that are based in Fairfax, Virginia? Are you guys like a chapter affiliated? Are you kind of a standalone thing that, that was developed uh, after the 2004 and five seasons like you talked about? Because I, I think the Napia group, they've been in business for quite a while. Maybe you can comment a little bit on that, the relationship Florida may have with the national group, et cetera. Sure. That, that's a great question. Thank you, Pete. Um, so, there are two separate organizations. Uh, like, I, like I said, I think it was our first question, public adjusting kind of started in the Northeast about 100 years ago. And NAPIA was one of the, the first associations that was developed to look out and advocate for the interest of public adjusters. And FAPIA, which is the Florida Association, was actually founded in 1992, right after Hurricane Andrew. Uh, and it was, it was founded because just like we had some issues after the 2005-2006 hurricanes, there was also some issues going on after Hurricane Andrew. And the founders of FAPIA were actually members of NAPIA. So they were members of NAPIA, but practicing within the state of Florida so our founding, our founding members uh, were basically all came from NAPIA. Um, and then the group has evolved over the years. Uh, we still remain a very close relationship with NAPIA uh, and other uh, state associations. There's APIA, which is the American Association of Public Insurance Adjusters. And we also engage very closely with other state associations uh, throughout the country. So um, we, when it comes to NAPIA, we're actually a member of their association, FAPIA is, 
and they're also a member of our association. But we work very closely with all the associations, and it was their their members who actually founded our association after uh, Andrew. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's good. That's a, a good history. Um, you know, myself uh, being born and raised and starting the business in the Northeast, I was always familiar with public adjusting, and then lived in California for many years. And uh, out there, uh, some of the the public adjusting really on the West Coast tended to be more for commercial claims and real high end. It wasn't as commonplace like uh, some of the, you know, like you discussed a little bit earlier in the show, the Northeast and in the Florida market. Um, so uh, the other thing I, I guess I'd ask you to comment on is um, the, uh, you know, these issues with the AOB are really, uh, these assignment of benefits, particularly in the state of Florida, are, are really problematic. And I, you know, um, we had a wrap-up show for the RA convention weeks ago, me and Ken Larson talking with Cliff and Radio Joe, and of course, you know, of course, we talked about the panel that you were on with Harvey and Ralph Moon and uh, Michael Bowden, and um, you know, one of the things that came out of there that you said, Paul, that kind of struck a chord with me is that, you know, what you were talking about, how you raised the bar uh, with Fabia in Florida with a lot of the abuse that was going on when the, the public adjusters went from a thousand to four thousand, you know, in two thousand and five and six. And I, I guess you had made a comment, and I, I really kind of took it to heart that, you know, industry kind of needs to self-regulate. And, of course, that's easier said than done. And maybe before we close the show, I'll put, put may have some, some viewpoints in that, too. But I guess the problem is, and this is the way I see it, is that when you're licensed by the states, and particularly in the case of this adjusting, you know, serving the public like that, if, if, they, if they're breaking the law they're, or they're violating the, you know, the, the license, there's recourse, whether they're kind of caught because the consumer turns them in or whether, you know, the associations turn them in because they're kind of running a foul and, and hurting the profession. And I guess in states where there's contract licensing laws, that applies also. Now, I'm not sure about the state of Florida, whether to be a licensed contractor in Florida, how much of that affects the work that restorers and mitigators do. Not when they get into construction, but, you know, mostly when they do this drying and, and uh and uh, the emergency work, which is, the, I think, on the front end, sparked a lot of these issues when you said the insurers come out there they can't have evidence of proof of the loss. Now, being involved as a contractor in California for many years, there's about 10 or 11 western states where if some of the work that these contractors or the mitigators are doing in Florida, they fall into the contract licensing laws there. And a lot of these guys, if they're not licensed, the state will put pressure. Now, with that backdrop of all this, this is where I see the challenge. Maybe you can comment, number one, if the Florida state contracting laws, if you know if they're similar to some of those western states, and the mitigators may not fall under that. But let's assume that guys are licensed and they fall under, you know, they, they, they meet all the contracting laws. How do you self-regulate the guys who just want to run a foul and whatever they're doing, really, it might hurt the consumers and the public, but it doesn't violate the contracting law, which it seems to me was the big issue with the public adjusters, that they broke the laws that govern that profession, there was recourse that could come down on them. I'm not so sure that we have that in our industry. I'm not sure what the rules are in the state of Florida compared to California and other states where it's real, real tough. So commenting on that, having Cliff comment on that, I think that'd be really useful for the audience, the, 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 you know, the uh, inspector types who listen to the show for the air quality, the, the restoration contractors will download and read the blog and that kind of stuff. Um, 
I know that the state of California, and I did mention this it, in um, in, in uh, my opening comments before we had the panel discussion in Orlando, that there was an article just recently released in a litigation uh, management magazine that comes out quarterly. It's under the claims management uh, umbrella. And there was precedent-setting case in the state of California supporting the assignment of benefits, even in, I think, in both first- and third-party claims. Uh, claims. And I think that is going to have national implications that it went through appeal and everything, and the courts basically held up the use of assignments of benefits. And I, um, anyway, I, it's pretty new stuff. But uh, those are my comments. That's my question. However, you and Cliff can address that before yes. closing the show. It would be very helpful and I think would be useful to the listeners and uh, people that download the podcast and post the blog. Yeah, so, so great points, and uh, I'm glad you brought it up. So let me make the distinction. There's two things, right? There's breaking the law, and then there's potentially acting unethically. And many times the issues that, that we're seeing or we're talking about isn't necessarily breaking the law. So it's not that these guys are doing something illegal, but maybe they're not and you know everybody's ethical standard is at a different point. So what may be ethical to one person may be unethical to the other. So it's very subjective. But for our our conversation, you know, let's just talk about it in a, ger- a general sense. The best thing that the restoration industry can do, and there's kind of this initial reaction when somebody says, or they generalize your industry and says that you're doing something unethical. The initial reaction is to be defensive, right? Well, I'm not being unethical. I wouldn't have to do this if this guy wasn't doing this. Or, you know, I'm only doing this because I have to do it because of that. And you have kind of this shift of blame where you're trying to either, you know, put it on the legislature or put it on the insurance industry or whatever the case may be. But for an industry, for your industry, you have to really realize what you can control and what you can't control. You can't control the actions of insurance companies. To a lesser extent, you know, you can't control the actions of other stakeholders. Um, but you can control the actions of your own industry. You know, not everybody, but the first step is, as an industry, you have to say, listen, let's, let's just put the cards on the table. There's some things that are going on that are you know, less than ethical. Let's just own up to it. Everybody's not doing it, but there are some people out there that are doing it. And then once you outline what those things are, go on a mission to educate the people within your industry to try to get them to stop doing these type of activities. Um, the public adjusters, we had the same thing. It was not easy to hear that there were public adjusters you know, within our industry that were doing things that were unethical. They weren't necessarily against the law at that point, but they were things that were, you know, that made us embarrassed when we heard that they were being done. We didn't really want them out in the public, but it wasn't until we said, you know what, instead of being defensive on this, we just need to own up to it. It's actually happening. Uh, You know, to what degree, we don't know 100%, but we know it's going on. So, you know, through our charter, through our association, we're going to put our code of ethics together, 
Uh, we're going to make our code of ethics stronger than what's required from us from the state. And we're going to put our own ethics committee together. And we're going to ask our membership, if you see someone out there who's doing something that's either unethical or something that they shouldn't do, report it to us and we'll investigate it. And what we found is people weren't bad people. They weren't necessarily trying to, you know, game the system or create a bad name for uh, the industry. A lot of times it was just education. They didn't know any better. You know, they, they weren't in the, the, uh, the driver's seat where they had been in the industry for 10, 15, 20 years. And, you know, if you look at your industry right now, you know, when I drive down I-95 or the Turnpike, every day I see a brand new restoration company opening up. And I see a brand new, you know, uh, mold testing company or hygienist firm opening up. You know, because there's a certain demand out there for this product, but a lot of these people that are, you know, gaining entry to this industry might not have uh, the background or the experience. So when they get into it, they may have no idea that doing certain things has such a dramatic disruptive impact, you know, not only to the marketplace at whole, but, you know, more specifically to your industry. So, you know, I would be willing to work with you guys, uh, help you develop or, you know, a, an outreach program to educate people. Um, I've always said, you know, the restoration industry is critical to the policyholders and consumers. Uh, you guys feel such an important need, um, and, you know, it, it would really be a shame um, if, you know, a small select few of group of people that continue to do certain things that maybe they just don't know any better uh, weren't able to be reached and educated uh, because at the end of the day, it's going to impact, you know, everybody's business. And I, I would just close with one last point. Uh, I'm sure you guys are aware, but, you know, citizens put forward uh, some policy changes uh, that were approved by the Office of Insurance Regulation. Uh, some of them sound reasonable, but some of them have, you know, dramatic uh, impacts. And, and one of them would be, you know, reasonable emergency men, uh, measures. You know, come in July 2016, you know, if, if this is in a citizen's policy, you know, you cannot provide emergency services that exceed $3,000 or 1% of coverage A, you know, whichever is the lesser amount, without the approval of citizens. So, you know, from a, a restoration contractor point of view, you know, what do you do if you go into a loss and you start to exceed $3,000, um, I don't know what the process is going to be for getting that approval, um, but what if you can't get that approval? Does that restoration contractor now pull their equipment out of the property? Does that negatively impact consumers? Uh, does their, their, the property get further damaged because you had to stop um, the, the remediation at a you know, uh, a, a dollar certain amount of 3,000 or 1%. Um, that I have concerns with, but a lot of this is tied in because I think that the industry is trying to address some of the abuses, and I think the best people to address those abuses is not the insurance industry, it's not citizens, it's the restoration industry. It's groups like yours that can go out and that can talk and educate your members 
uh, people who are not even your members, encourage them to be members of your association and educate them on you know, the best way to move forward. So I applaud you guys for everything that you do and all the work that, that you're doing um, in that area. And I, I'm, I'm definitely open to helping you guys in the future. Well, thank you. My, my, my comments on, on what, what Pete said is I'm a less government uh, person. I find very few things other than national defense that the government does efficiently, and I don't see that a government solution. Uh, I do like Paul's stakeholder approach. I like the way, you know, with FAIR, they brought all the different stakeholders to the table, and it seems to be an excellent model uh, and it's working. Pete, I'll give you a final comment, and then I'm going to give uh, Paul the last word. Yeah. Well, Paul, I appreciate all those comments. You know, in uh, in California and a lot of these western states, they have consumer protection laws which deal with a lot of those issues that you brought up with citizens trying to do. And, you know, they have the cooling off period, and then they have uh, waivers, the liens of the waiver of that, so that the mitigators can do that service work so that they don't go in there and in 72 hours, you know, someone says, well, you know, we want to cancel the work. Um, but that, if that legislation goes through here in Florida, that's going to be real problematic, uh, you know, for all the reasons that you said and probably a whole bunch of others we don't have time to get into. So, um, yeah, that uh, that is something that um, it, it probably would be worth it if somehow, you know, the industry did get involved to, uh, you know, to speak against that. But anyway, I um, Paul, in your closing comments, uh, let everybody know about your your uh, thing on the 29th there up in Tampa. I'm registered. I'm planning on coming. I encourage a lot of the local people, uh, either in REA or related to our strategic partners and subject matter experts who live in the state, to try to come down. I'm looking forward to uh, you know listening to the program and everything, and um, and somehow kind of getting involved. So uh, anyway, I enjoyed the interview. It was great. Cliff, thanks for the few extra questions, and uh, I'll turn it back over to you, boys. Okay. Well, Paul, we're going to give you the last word. Is there anything that you'd like to add? So uh, thank you, Pete. I appreciate it. Yes, we are having a conference uh, coming up on April 28th in Tampa. Uh, you can get more information about the conference at www.floridainsurancereform.org. Uh, or you can find us on Facebook uh, for the Florida Association for Insurance Reform. Uh, that conference is basically a macro uh, public policy workshop with uh, industry leaders across the state uh, to figure out what is the best way to strengthen Florida's insurance marketplace to make sure that, you know, that we have a strong, competitive, robust insurance industry uh, that will be around for the benefit of consumers. So, um, you know, anybody who wants to attend, they can buy a ticket and come attend. It's going to be a great event, uh, and we would look forward to anybody that, that, that wants to be there and, and speaking with them. Okay. So other than well, that, thanks, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, and any events that you guys have in the future, feel free to reach out to me. Okay, before we go, I want to thank this week's guest, Paul Handerhan, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes. Our engineer, John, you got to have faith. The global watchdog, Pete Consigli. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please be sure to join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IQ Radio.
This has been another IAQ Radio production.